What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to FedWatch. Just me and Ansel this time, but this is going to be an awesome show. Show number 48. This is going to be a Q1 review. We're going to talk about central banking in Q1 of 2020. We're also going to review all of the shows that we did over on FedWatch. We did a lot of great interviews. We talked about a lot of important topics in Q1 of 2020. Oh my God. Q1 of 2021. Uh, so I'm excited for this one. It's going to be very, very dense. Ansel, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people didn't come over to our new feed. And so we have to make sure everyone knows all the great interviews that we have done and uh, all the reviews of central bank stuff because we did one in February and now we're going to do another review here in April. So um, I'm excited for this one. We're publishing this both on the FedWatch feed as well as the Bitcoin magazine feed and over on YouTube. So if you're watching over on YouTube, if you are listening on the Bitcoin magazine podcast feed, go to your podcast player, type in FedWatch Bitcoin and macro and subscribe to FedWatch. We do this show every single Wednesday. We interview the best in macro. We talk about everything that the central banks are doing, and we put it into the context of Bitcoin. There is no show on the market like this. And honestly, like Bitcoiners are the tip of the spear when it comes to the, the revolution in money and the revolution in finance. And uh, this is the only show that's like talking macro and Bitcoin in a serious way. So um, get off Real Vision. Subscribe to FedWatch. Oh, big words, big words there. I mean, hey, I believe it in my heart, so uh, I, I believe it to be true. You know what else is fucking awesome, Ansel, and what the listeners should also do? They should go to b.tc forward slash conference and check out the Bitcoin 2021 conference. Uh, Ansel's going to be there. I'm going to be there. A bunch of our guests are going to be there. Uh, Max Kaiser, Nick Batia, Greg Foss, Daniel Prince, Mark Moss. All of them are going to be at Bitcoin 2021. Chamath is going to be there. I don't know if you like Chamath, but he's going to be there. Uh, no, not Naval. Nick Zabo. Nick Zabo is going to be at Bitcoin 2021. Tony Hawk. Uh, you can see Tony Hawk shred and talk about his Bitcoin journey at the conference. I mean, you could just keep going. Like I'm, I'm not even talking about, you know, Giga Chad Sailor. He's going to be there. I'm not even talking about Anthony Scaramucci. There's so many to to bring up and every single Bitcoiner in North America is going to be at the conference. So don't wait, go to b.tc forward slash conference, get your ticket before they get more expensive because this week they're more expensive than they were last week and uh, use promo code Satoshi to save yourself 10% off. So uh, buy with Bitcoin, we give you $50 in addition to the 10% off if you buy with Bitcoin off your ticket. So maximize your savings, buy with Bitcoin, use promo code Satoshi. All right, that is enough from me, Ansel. Let's jump into this. Like, I, I just name dropped a bunch of our uh, guests that came on this season, this quarter, to the show that are going to be at the conference. Um, do we want to talk about any of these interviews that we had uh, over the course of Q1? I don't know. I think uh, Michael Leibowitz was one of my favorites just because I watch his uh, other stuff on YouTube, and he's kind of a somebody that the Bitcoin space doesn't really get exposure to we've, you know, some of the other guests like Max Kaiser, a lot of Bitcoiners are familiar with what he's going to say, but we try to get those people on that push the borders of the space and maybe ask the Bitcoin questions of the traditional macro people 
and get them thinking another way, or maybe even getting us thinking another way. So we reveal, I think we, we learn a lot. We reveal a lot to them that it's not all pump and dump over here on the Bitcoin side. There's a lot of people asking legit questions and wanting to know legit stuff about macro. So, um, yeah, I think Michael Leibowitz was good. I also, I mean, I liked everybody. Of course, Nick Batia, uh, his layered money stuff is uh, really fascinating. He's adding a lot to the space, a lot to the conversation out there. Uh, some of my fav- more favorite uh, episodes are just you and me talking. We talked about GameStop. We talked about, um, well, we, we kind of led Bitcoin uh, in, into 2021 with uh, an episode called A New Hope. And that was for like you know, just being positive out there because there's so much negativity, especially around the election and around COVID. And, you know, we've tried to concentrate on Bitcoin being a very positive force in the world. So uh, those are some of my favorite episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my favorite framing of Bitcoin is one of your kind of axioms, which is that like, there's going to be two systems, the fiat system and the Bitcoin system. And the Bitcoin system is where there's going to be, you know, economic allocation that is appropriate. It's where there's going to be growth. It's where there's going to be value capture. And you can already see that like Bitcoiners have conviction. Bitcoiners have optimism. Bitcoiners have hope in their lives. And then people who, who don't like believe in Bitcoin, a lot of the people let's call it the the political left. Um, you, I saw a chart yesterday showing that uh, the left has increasing trust in the media, right? Um, while independence in the right has decreasing trust in the media, stuff like that. Like, it's just a completely different world. It's like, it's, it's a world that's just controlled by fear. It's really kind of crazy. Um, so yeah. Bitcoin is a new hope. And I mean, I, I think 2021 is going to make that even more apparent. Yeah. Think about how do you invest in the fiat world? You kind of have to just buy stocks, you know, real estate. Those are the type of, those are the boring investments and they just keep going up and it's not super exciting. It's kind of depressing. If you think like, you know, the PE ratios are at such high elevated levels in stocks that it has to crash. You know, it has to crash. You're waiting for it to crash, but it just keeps going up. It's just kind of a depressing um, uh, way to look at investment. But then when you turn over to Bitcoin, you have Bitcoin mining that you can invest in. You have all sorts of Bitcoin payment companies. You have layer two companies. You have all these different things that uh, people are building actual things that are super exciting. And so when you look at investable uh, asset classes, I guess, out there, Bitcoin is just super exciting. And I think that's going to you know, the black hole effect is going to suck all this money into, into the Bitcoin space. The black hole effect. Did you read uh, William Clement's article about that? Um, I read something a couple years back. Was that from a couple years back? No, no. But um, one of our new guys at Bitcoin magazine an analyst, uh, William Clement, um, he wrote an article like two months ago called the Bitcoin black hole effect. And he just talked about, he, you know, effectively there's multiple thesis is about how Bitcoin sucks up value. And so he just put all of them into, into one, right. <laughs> and called that the black hole effect about how like Bitcoin is attacking uh, the existing system um, and serving marginalized people um, and, and absorbing value in many ways. Right. 
And I would agree. Like, I think Bitcoin, the, the right way to think about Bitcoin is, is overwhelming. Like Bitcoin is about overwhelming decentralizations. Like, oh, the government's going to, you know, ban Bitcoin. Like how? Are they going to ban all the nodes? Are they going to ban all the keys? Like, how are they going to actually do it? It's like overwhelming. Um, and, and I think that that's like how you should think about Bitcoin and like what Bitcoin does. Everything is overwhelming. Even like the, the Bitcoin Hornets on, on Twitter, Bitcoin is overwhelming. I love the way that's phrased. And, but didn't your co-host David, didn't he write uh, Ethereum, the black hole or something like that a couple of years back? Yeah. I mean, the ETH has loved to just, uh, take Bitcoin memes and repurpose them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get into uh, central banks. You want to do yeah. an update? Yeah. I mean, so we got an update on the PBOC, the ECB, uh, the Bank of Japan, the Fed. Ansel, you're the product expert here. Hit us. Hit us with, with these updates. All right. So I wanted to start with the PBOC. I spend a lot of time reading about China and reading about that part of the world. So uh, I wanted to start with China. They, they, of course, in their central bank stuff, uh, some of the big headlines are this digital yuan. We've been waiting for it for a long time. It's uh, been in pilot, different testing. They, it's, it's, I think it's so unsuccessful. They have to pay people like $200 worth of this uh, digital yuan to partake in these pilot programs. People don't even want to uh, partake in it. Um, and there's a little bit of pushback over there in China with um, the traditional payment providers or traditional, they, their traditional payment providers are Alipay and like WeChat pay. I don't know. I don't use those type of things, but um, there's a, they, one of their central bank, I guess, chiefs or governors or whatever came out and said, Oh no, this is not going to replace cash. This is not going to replace Alipay. You guys can rest assured about that. And so there's, I mean, I think as what I said a long time ago was this CBDC stuff, we're going to watch the central bankers learn about blockchain technology and they're going to learn about uh, digital currencies and, and cryptocurrencies. And really all they're making is another payment app to compete with the private sector. Uh, and we're starting to see them wake up to that over there in China. So that's the summation on the digital yuan. Yeah. I mean, I have really, I think me and you are extremely in line, maybe because we've done 48 episodes of FedWatch and have just talked about this so much, but I'm completely aligned with the, with your take. And honestly, like, these guys are just doing what all the shitcoiners have done and have already discovered don't work, right? Which is they're airdropping their tokens. They're trying to like implement these payment things. Even when you hear Christine Lagarde talking about it, it's about payments. And then they say, oh, it's going to be private cash. And then on the flip side, it doesn't compete with cash. And then on the flip side of that, oh, if you have more than $3,000, you have to do KYC. Like all of this stuff, it's like, and then when are they going to ship? Ultimately, okay, like China, at least they're trying to get adoption. They're at least have, they've started putting, you know, uh, rubber to, to the ground on that front. No one else has shipped anything yet. And they haven't even learned these lessons on their own, right? Like the, all these other central banks we're going to talk about haven't even done anything. Uh, I would say the Fed is the closest to getting, uh, you know, Fed bucks or uh, online just because, Coinbase and Tether and all these other people who are already 100% compliant to them have already done it. Other than that, no one else has done anything. 
Yeah, well, there is a minor central bank that just launched a central bank digital currency. That is the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank. I didn't know this central bank even existed, but there's like, I don't know, eight to 10 islands that they're the central bank for. And they've launched a coin called Dcash. So kind of like Bcash, but Dcash. And uh, we'll, we'll get to see how that takes off. But uh, right now it's, I mean, it's such a small central bank. It's a you know, small corner of the world, uh, but it will be, a lot of people will watch it and see what happens. Maybe their banks start hating it and push back. Maybe they have to update it in three months because it affected their economy in a certain negative way. So um, yeah, we will get to watch that. Yeah. Moving back, moving back yeah, to back China. China. What's that? Back to China. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah. China, the monetary policy um, update from them is they've recently started saying they're going to be cutting back on their stimulus. Of course, everybody in the world is providing stimulus and China said, Oh, we're worried about overheating. So we're going to cut back uh, in the second quarter on this new stimulus. And I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, the, the market is so complex. It's a infinitely complex machine and any stimulus, like even stimulus in the United States will affect China, right? Because people will get some money and they'll spend it. That money will go through the supply chains and stimulate China. Um, and that will be a temporary stimulus to China, just like it's a temporary stimulus to um, uh, people here in the United States. But uh, the way that these stimulus uh, checks and the stimulus uh, flows through this complex machine is very hard to predict. And one thing I see when I look at China and their monetary policy, unlike the Fed, right? The Fed has forward guidance. They'll say, we're not going to raise interest rates till 2024. Um, we're going to do this $800 billion a month uh, if QE uh, for the foreseeable future. And so there, there's some consistency, at least there. But in China, it seems like they do a firefighter approach that they see, oh, there's some overheating in the real estate market. Let's do, let's do a policy for that. Okay, there's some sort of overheating over here. We're going to do a policy for that. And um, they, they just seem to be very, they think they have a magic bullet, magic monetary policy to address these little things. But with the infinitely complex market, the infinitely complex uh, global economy, um, I don't think they're going to be able to do that. So I, I do think uh, I'm, I'm bearish on China. <laughs> I'll, I'll work that into here somewhere. Uh, I'm very bearish China, um, but I think they could be uh, experiencing some sort of a blow off top in this first quarter, right? Moving into the second quarter and they could be ex experience, they could experience a crash uh, coming forward in Q2 or Q3 of this year. Okay, well, we need to watch China then. Uh, Ansel is calling for imminent crash in the second half of this year, blow off top on China. Personally, I'm, I'm bearish China because totalitarianism and um, totalitarianism as well as uh, the inability, like the micromanaging that you're describing, right? There's just so much micromanaging and misallocation of capital. Um, with that being said, it seems like every other Western country is trying to emulate China, at least in the current terms. So if you're playing by China's rule book, then maybe China's better than you at doing that. And all these other governments are just shooting themselves in the foot. So I don't know what, how, what plays out in the short term. Like, I think I'm looking at Europe, I'm looking at Australia, I'm looking at Canada. 
and I'm sad. I'm really sad. And I'm looking at half the U.S. and I'm sad. And I mean, again, I think states' rights is the difference with the U.S. and a lot of these other other places. Um, so that makes me optimistic about the U.S., which I think you've talked about. Yeah, yeah, very optimistic about the U.S. Um, but with, with China, it's um, I don't know exactly where we want to go with this, but I, I see that the the Western world. The only thing they really agree about right now, both sides of any sort of political aisle, even in Europe, it's it's pretty fairly unanimous. And in the U.S., it's unanimous that they don't like China. Chinese sanctions are a very easy political thing to get past right now. I think in the tr- Trump's last year, the only unanimous vote in Congress was uh sanction or verbally sanctioning China over Hong Kong. So there's, it's a very easy thing to do. And I'm worried that, you know, if China does get cut off from uh, some of these markets, then their economy will crash dramatically hard. And who knows? I don't know if that will happen this year. Uh, It's coming. I think that is coming in the next maybe five years, but I do think that this year we're going to see a downturn in China. And China might be the start of uh, a euro dollar number five. That is what uh, uh, Jeff Schneider is calling these kind of mini recessions around the world. So I think we could be going sliding back into a mini recession driven by China this summer. But anyway, should we move on to ECB? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the big headlines out of Europe that I've seen are of course, this vaccine debate and uh, the bungled rollout of the vaccine in China or in um, Europe. And not not that I'm a big vaccine promoter or anything, but I see that there's a lot of people that want this vaccine. So um, there's even been some Eastern European countries that are going to Russia to get their vaccine. And you can see how that would cause some internal conflicts within the uh, EU. Also, France is stepping up militarily. They have had a couple naval exercises, even as far away as Southeast Asia. Um, And we have Ukraine and Russia heating up. So there is a lot of stuff that is real news happening in Europe, where in the United States, there's a lot of stuff like um, uh, some riots in a city. Well, that's not anything like tanks rolling into the Crimea. Right. So there, there's like real things happening in Europe. And I think that that is uh, destabilizing definitely to the European Union and to the euro in general. So that's that's kind of the basic uh, background for Europe. Should we go right into ECB news? Well, let's just talk about Europe a little bit. I mean. I think since day one, me and you have been saying if there's one kind of big wick fiat that is primed to break apart soon or first it's the euro it's the youngest so it has the i mean ish it's the young it's relatively young it's only a few years older than bitcoin um when was the euro rolled out was that in 2000 i think 99 it started trading 2001 2001 yeah yeah so i mean bitcoin 2009 that's eight years later so it's not in like fundamentally like there's issues between all of the countries within the, the EU and um, the EU and the ECB. Like there are a lot, there's a lot of friction there. Whereas like that does not exist with the U S 
Like everyone in the U.S. is happy to use the U.S. dollar and identifies as Americans before their state for the most part. You know, that's not Europe. Europe is not yeah. like that at all. Like they're Spaniards, they're French, they're Frenchmen, they're Englishmen. They're like, they're, you know, England is the UK already left. Right. Um, and then, so like the Europe is a completely different situation. Yeah. And I think the Euro has a lot further to fall. So if, if I'm bearish on Europe and I'm bearish on China, then uh, you know, the Yuan is used for like 1% of global trade. So that's not that big of a deal if the yuan collapses. But if the euro starts fracturing, that's what, 20 to 40%, 20, I think, yeah, somewhere around that, uh, that range, 20 to 40% of the global economy is based off euros. So that would be, if they had some sort of breakup or massive event over there, that could really affect the global economy in major ways. Let's hit the EC. Let's hit the ECB. Okay, so they have the same sort of uh, CBDC talk, central bank digital currency. Um, one, of, I'm going to pull up this uh, article so I get the guy's name right. Um, they have this uh, Fabio Panetta. He's an ECB board member. He wrote a blog post to push back on some what he, they call myths about this central bank digital currency, because like we hear from a lot of people. In, in the world of Bitcoin, in the gold bug world, you know, the sound money world, we hear that they're always scared about this cashless society getting pushed on us. And then that's an easy way for monetary policy to debase even faster. Um, and so he he headed, you know, uh, addressed this head on and he refuted the claim that the central bank intends to abolish cash and then having done so impose some lower interest rates on the digital euro for monetary policy reasons. He also gives short thrift to musings that the digital euro would displace banking intermediation and would not be based on a viable business model. Plans to introduce a digital euro are still at a conceptual stage with an announcement expected in June as to how best to proceed. So uh, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of pushback and they're starting to learn, like we said just a few minutes ago, uh, the Europe's, the ECB's efforts along this uh, digital currency uh, trajectory is not going very well. Uh, And it's not going very fast. Uh, They are years and years away. And like you always say, where's Bitcoin going to be in four years when this uh, eventually uh, launches? It's going to be another 10x the size, right? And so that's, it's, Instead of the euro, I mean, the euro isn't going to be able to launch this fast enough to not collapse in the meantime, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Bitcoin is overwhelming. So like they're being overwhelmed and they're trying to ship, but they're a massive bureaucracy that has a lot of other fires that they're dealing with. Uh, the, they're actually starting to sound a little desperate. So I have a quote here from Christine Lagarde and... Uh, I'll I'll give you guys all these links in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this, uh, you can find it. But uh, she said, quote, they can test us as much as they want. We have exceptional circumstances to deal with at the moment, and we have exceptional tools to use at the moment and a battery of those. We will use them as and when needed in order to deliver on our mandate and deliver on our pledge to the economy. 
So they're, she's fighting the bond vigilantes. There are these vigilantes that are trying to, she thinks there are these vigilantes that are trying to push up bond yields. And uh, so she's like, oh, they can test this all they want. It just is a, a sound of desperation. What do you think about that? Well, she's defensive, right? Like she thinks that the market calling her out is testing. I mean, I guess it is testing. So they are testing her and she's saying, you think we're not going to do it? We're going to do it. We're going to burn our people at the stake in order to, to, to keep this model going. Right. So that's what they're willing to do. Um, that's what she's saying. All right. So that's all I have on the ECB. We can roll into the fed next. Are you ready for that? Oh boy. I'm always ready. Okay, so uh, just a review of the well, we did an update in February on central bank stuff. So this is really the last month to two months, and since then, in with the Fed, uh, there has been a big controversy over this SLR, and what that stands for is supplementary leverage ratio. It, back in 2020, during the you know the height of the crisis, uh, the the Federal Reserve made an exception to treasuries on the balance sheet and some other assets on the balance sheet for banks that they didn't have to count those. Um, so if you're look, thinking about fractional reserve, right, and you have a ratio of 3% or 4% that you have to have assets to your loan, uh, to your liabilities and stuff, then uh, this was an exception on that. And people thought that this uh, allowed this would allow banks to leverage up higher. Okay. And then in May, or sorry, uh, at the end of March of this year, so just last week, uh, that exception ran out. And people were thinking this was going to cause a big uh, crash in the market because these banks had over leveraged and they, they all had to deleverage to get back within this SLR rule. And what happened? Nothing. They hadn't been over leveraged. They didn't, uh, you know, create more credit. There was not a lot of credit expansion going on. And so when this SLR, SLR rule got reinstated, there was not really much going on uh, for the bank. So that, that all drama happened throughout the month of March. And I thought it was very interesting. Did you hear about that? And do you have any thoughts on the SLR? So I'm not super informed on the SLR, but it's just kind of hilarious how all of these policies, they seem to like there, there's this drama that is like leading up to like making this huge policy. And then it turned out to just be a nothing burger. Like that happens all the time. Like, e like, I don't even know how serious Y2K was, but it was this huge scare that created this massive policy. And then it seemed like it turned out to be a nothing burger. So this seems like it's been a long-term trend here. Yeah. And in March, this particular topic was front and center in most of the fed pressers. So if they had their meeting and then they had their press conference afterwards, or they testified in front of Congress or whatever, this SLR rule was one of the things that was really talked about and people were really worried about it. Um, I think it just shows that there, there is not a lot of credit creation going on. Um, and credit creation is what actually prints money. But uh, let's go on to the next thing. <laughs> There's a Treasury General account. Wait, hey, so real quick, yeah. like I feel like there's. I don't a want to get preachy about that though. 
Yeah, I mean, so let, let's take a quick pause for maybe a new listener, someone who's on the Bitcoin Magazine feed who's not subscribed to the FedWatch feed. You know, why why is money production and inflation um, something that you think is controversial? Because I think that the the average Bitcoiner thinks, burr, money printer go burr, inflation is everywhere, dollars going down, every fiat currency is going down because of hyperinflation. Um, because they're, I mean, here's an anecdote. So I just bought a grill for my back patio and my brother-in-law had bought the exact same model eight years ago. I paid $50 less than he did. So I don't see any inflation really, uh, gas prices. They're lower than 10 years ago. I mean, almost anywhere you look, except a few specific asset classes like stocks, real estate, bonds, those types of things go up. But most prices are not going up. They're actually falling. And so I I subscribe to the Austrian school that if you have uh, money printing happening, you will have a broad-based level of prices going up. Or um, what would you – I used the wrong term there. A – Broad inflationary pressure on all prices, pushing all prices higher, but we don't see that. And we haven't seen that QE started 12, 13 years ago in the U S and we haven't seen inflation. It started 20 years ago in Japan and they are stuck in deflation. So there, there has to be something that we're not seeing. And my, my opinion is that QE is not money printing. It is just a asset swap. So the banks will, Trade tre- will give treasuries to the Fed. The Fed will give them a balance that's denominated in dollars, but it isn't dollars because it just sits there in the Fed. So that money never leaves the Fed. It's not even money. It's just a balance on a balance sheet. It's like, uh, I say it's balance sheet magic. So that's like a token. That's an NFT that you can get in the game of central banking to balance your balance sheet. And it's not real money. It's not treated as real money in the economy. So QE is not money printing. And I also say that stimulus, fiscal stimulus, but those that's uh, uh, where the government borrows money to hand it out. That is not money printing either. That is just redistribution. They take it from savings and they give it to people to spend. So uh, all of that is not inflationary because inflation is a increase in the money supply. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, what if I could add any color? What I would say is like the economy, the global economy is an incredibly complex system, and what central bankers are doing is probably not going to have a known effect. Like it's going to be a random effect that pops up randomly. And I I've, I've been pushing this really hard. I really love this idea of a monetary hurricane. Like we're living in a storm uh, and it makes it impossible to have proper uh, capital um, or to make uh, appropriate kind of economic calculation. It makes it um, impossible to kind of like value the landscape. And that's why we're seeing like stocks having no sensical rhyme or reason to their valuation. That's why we're seeing real estate having no rhyme or reason to uh, its valuation. That's where I'm seeing education having no rhyme or reason. Also, education is highly subsidized. Everywhere we're seeing subsidies, 
um, and government interference, we're seeing prices explode. And then everywhere else, we're seeing prices go down. We're seeing technological technological advances driving prices down. So like, there's a lot of things that are happening. Prices could also go up because supply chains are being disrupted and uh, globalization is being disrupted. And we're moving from a, a economy that's optimized towards specialization and efficiency to an economy that is a little bit more robust and like uh, localized. So, I mean, there's so many different things here. And to just say Fed make printer go bird, you know, inflation, I think it's just way, way, way overly simplistic. Yeah, well, I, I would be careful calling it education, the price of education, because the price of schools have gone up. Credentialing. Yes, the price of credentials has gone up, but not Education the price. has gone down to oh, zero. To ze- almost to zero, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there, I think it depends on how you measure it. And uh, that's very important. But also there's this euro dollar thing. So once dollars leave the United States, they're outside of the jurisdiction of the United States. And what I think has happened over the last 30, 40 years, uh, we saw the Japanese miracle where they just got pumped up on credit. They got this big credit bubble and then it started popping. And where, where did all that money flow to? It flowed to China. Almost, the, You can time it to down to almost the exact year that this happened, 1990. It went from, it shifted from Japanese growth to Chinese growth. And we had the Japanese miracle and then the Chinese miracle. And it's all based off this Euro dollar credit bubble. So there's trillions and trillions. We had Nick Batia on and we asked him like how, how much money is in the world. There's like you know at least $300 trillion in the world. And if the central bank is printing a trillion dollars, that doesn't really matter if $5 trillion is being defaulted on. Right. So it's very hard to measure the amount of money in the system. So uh, I, that the reason why I'm hesitant, I was hesitant at first to talk about this is because, yeah, a lot of people out there that we have on the show that we want to have on the show, they they won't they don't want to discuss that deflation versus inflation argument so much because uh, everything is money printing. The Federal Reserve is printing money, and that is what is going to make everybody go to Bitcoin or gold in the past when I was a gold bug, that is what's going to drive people uh, to sound money is the inflation, but we don't see the inflation. There is no inflation. And so then you have to start making arguments for Bitcoin based on deflation, which is what I try to do a lot uh, in my podcast and on my newsletters. So anyway, enough preachiness. Uh, Should we get on with the Fed? No, let's show your podcast and newsletter. Go subscribe to (laughs) Bitcoin and markets and go, uh, Check out what's your website, btcandmarkets.com? Bitcoinandmarkets.com. And then I also have a, another blog that's btcm.co. Yep. Check it all out, man. Ansel is an amazing resource. Help me get orange pilled. Help Nick Batia get orange pilled. Help tons and tons of people get orange pilled back in 2016, 2017, and has been putting out amazing content since, including here on FedWatch. Um, so yeah, let's let's jump back in. Um, again, want to make sure to all the listeners, please go to uh, your podcast feed, subscribe to the new FedWatch feed. This is where we drop the show every week. We do not longer, we no longer drop it on the Bitcoin Magazine feed. So if you're listening there or on YouTube, go subscribe. Um, but yeah, let's let's get back into the Fed. We just yeah. finished the SLR. Uh, so the other part is the Treasury General Account. So the Treasury General account is the account that the Treasury holds at the Fed. 
and it got up to almost $2 trillion of this, you know, during the stimulus and uh, during all the different flows back and forth of money, the treasury had a balance of almost $2 trillion uh, at the Fed. And Janet Yellen came in when Biden took office, Janet Yellen came in at treasury and said they were going to spend that down. I think they're going to go all the way down to 200 billion. So that means that there's going to be $1.8 trillion uh, that is going to be spent by the federal government in a very short period of time. I think in the last month, it's gone down about 800 billion. So that means they've spent 800 billion in the last month from this treasury general account. Now, what does that do? That is, uh, goes out into the economy and it has a booming economy. I know down here in Florida, uh, I've been driving on the interstates recently and there's just tons and tons of semis. So I know that the economy is booming big time in Florida. It's booming big time in Georgia, some of the other surrounding states that I visited. So um, I think the United States economy is really booming and that could be due to a lot of this money flowing out of the treasury general account and into the economy. Thoughts on that, Christian? How are they distributing the funds? Because one of my key heuristics here when it comes to government, you know, government and uh, central planners just, you know, allocating capital is they have a very difficult time actually distributing funds. Like it's not easy for them to do it in an effective way. Um, So I'm kind of curious, how are they doing that? Oh, I, I don't know the exact mechanism. Uh, I'm sure some of it probably went into the stimulus bill that just got passed by uh, the Congress. Um, what else? They There's probably all sorts of sweetheart deals. Uh, anything the government wants to spend it on, they're probably spending it on. So, um, But it is draining. It drained about $800 billion in the last month. Um, one thing that I will say, too, is that if the government can spend this money, that means they don't have to issue new debt. So we should see a corresponding slowdown in the, like, you know, the auction sizes. So instead we were at prior to, uh, prior to like February, I think we were all time high treasury issuance and, you know, like each auction was 10% bigger than the last auction and the debt was just rolling out. And that's really good actually for the economy because we need those treasuries in the economy to help work in the repo market to help work within the plumbing of the system to act as collateral, uh, et cetera. So there is a lot of need for us treasuries out there. And if they're not being issued by the treasury, that could cause a big problem. So we'll have to see how that affects repo, how that affects uh, some of the money market funds. I have noticed the Ted spread, which is the difference between uh, the LIBOR rate and the Fed funds rate. That uh, So LIBOR is um, a dollar rate in London, pretty much, uh, overseas. And the Fed funds rate is the dollar rate here. And so there is, the difference, if a difference gets large, that means there's stress in the system. Uh, if, the, if the spread is small, then obviously that means that everything is hunky-dory. But I have noticed over the last few weeks the TED spread has started to pick up. Uh, and so that could mean that this lack of issuance of treasuries along with um, maybe this SLR rule and QE and other things could be starting to show some signs of stress in the system. So 
I, I see. I think this is interesting. This is like central bank nerdery, but uh, it is very important because if this is the case, we should see in the next month or so uh, a turnaround. We, we should see some maybe stocks selling off, um, maybe the dollar spiking um, and things of that nature. So it does it, it does directly relate into the economy in that way. What does it mean for Bitcoin in your opinion? Oh man. Well, I still think Bitcoin is relatively uncorrelated. It has been correlated to stocks recently, but I think that's just because stocks are going up. Bitcoin always goes up. And so of course, if stocks are going up. So stocks are just correlated to Bitcoin right now. Is that, that's what you're saying. Pretty much. Yeah. It's not the other way around. And it's not because of money printing. Bitcoin's going up because a fundamental need for new SOV and people flocking to that. Yeah. I mean, demand, uh, there's lots of different types of demand. Nick Batia, when he was on, we started talking a little bit about um, Bitcoin as pristine collateral. I know Raul Paul, even though I don't, I'm not a huge fan of his, but uh, uh, he had used the term pristine collateral. And I think that's very much the case. Uh, Bitcoin is going to slowly, instead of treasuries, like I just talked about, treasuries are kind of the lubrication and the plumbing of the system. Um, Bitcoin can start acting that way. So uh, if there is a liquidity event, people can turn to Bitcoin uh, and maybe help uh, the liquidity get going in the system. So that, that's, there's all sorts of different reasons why Bitcoin is going up, but that would be a uh, monetary reason, like directly from the monetary plumbing of the system that Bitcoin is pristine collateral. Uh, observation that you've made is that QE sucks collateral out of the system. And the system is in need of collateral because pretty much what's happening is collateral is getting sucked up by the treasury and by the Fed. And, um, you know, all of these uh, stakeholders in the global economy are just holding on to like, you know, accounts that have value in them. Um, And those accounts aren't really used in the repo markets. They're not really used to uh, manage the plumbing. Yeah. And one of the things I've been trying to uh, use recently is everyone's kind of familiar with just-in-time inventory. Uh, So, you know, these supply chains, you don't want to hold up a huge inventory uh, and slowly work through your inventory. You want to get that delivery right in time so that you can do your part to it and ship it off to the next guy, right? So you have this just-in-time inventory supply chain system. People kind of understand that. But in finance, there's a just-in-time financing as well. And what you want to do is you want to um, not have too much cash on your balance sheet. You know, want, not want to have too much, uh, too many treasuries or too many other risky investments. So you're constantly, you're constantly going back and forth, trying to balance the levels in your uh, on your balance sheet and in your portfolios. So just in time financing needs treasuries because treasuries act as collateral to facilitate the money going back and forth Um, without that collateral QE is what sucks collateral off of the, uh, out of the system. Yes. And so it makes that liquidity go down. It actually makes it harder for money to move in the system and work in that just in time financing um, economy. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's 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 like drying out. Uh, if a river needs to flow for the economy to do its thing, like QE is kind of drying out the river, right? Yeah, or um, I would I would say like in a regular supply chain, uh, the just in time inventory, you have roads and you have trains and you have planes. Those are the the transportation system in this just in time uh, inventory system. But with the financing, it's treasuries. Treasuries are the railroad. They are the semis. They are the airplanes. Everything is a treasury pretty much. Uh, So without that mechanism, that transportation mechanism, which is a treasury, then the system kind of can't function at all. And that's what Bitcoin, now Bitcoin could be come in and fulfill that role of being, um, you know, a new type of railroad that will move the financial economy back and forth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything else that we want to touch on uh, with the Fed? If not, we should wrap it up. All right, guys. Let's wrap it. Yeah, this was a, this was a uh, very, very long and in-depth conversation. And we went a whole hour long and uh, really knocked out a ton of subjects. Like if you haven't listened to one episode this entire season, this entire past Q1 of 2021, um, this was the one to do it because we got you all caught up. But I would highly recommend um, go to all of the shows that uh, we mentioned. Go subscribe to the FedWatch feed and uh, listen to those interviews. Some of my personal favorites, the Nick Batia one was fantastic. The Max Kaiser one was fantastic. Uh, the Greg Foss and the Daniel Prince one were all, all of those were fantastic. So um, I really enjoyed those, uh, all the podcasts, um, as well as uh, I think Ansel mentioned this, you know, some of the analysis that Ansel and I do week to week about what's happening in current events and what's happening in macro. Uh, so you got to subscribe to the podcast. You got to go back and listen to some of those shows and uh, stay posted. We're dropping these shows every Wednesday. Yeah. I'll just add, if you don't want to hear me talking so much about my, uh, my deflationary theories, then our guests are mostly not that. So they, they are experts in their uh, relative field and they usually share a mainstream view, uh, but they, they're doing most of the talking and I'm not interjecting my deflationary bias in there. Uh, yeah, well, so I, I like to push Ansel to push back sometimes, but if you want to get more Ansel content, go fa- follow him on Twitter, go follow his other accounts, but make sure to go follow at Ansel Lindner. You can find me at CK underscore snarks, and you can find the show at Bitcoin Magazine, bitcoinmagazine.com, and everywhere where you find uh, Bitcoin Magazine and FedWatch and your podcast player. So make sure to subscribe. Make sure to give us those five-star reviews. Until next time, peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instrument. Do your own research.